Welcome to season five of Blackness in the Workplace, the podcast. I'm your host and founder of Blackness in the Workplace, Jessica Parm. And I am here to say that our voices as black professionals matter, our lives as black professionals matter, and our experiences, they matter. Here at Blackness in the Workplace, we are gonna do what we've always done. And that is of course to center, promote, and build and support the needs of black professionals both inside and outside the workplace and we will continue this work unapologetically i'm very excited for this season we got some great content so thank you for being with us and let's get started all right so welcome to this week's episode of black is in the workplace we are going to be continuing our conversation um hr behind the scenes talking to people who have um, HR experience in many different fields, coming on and talking about HR, DEI as well. So with me today, I have Ms. Kristen Bell. Kristen is an HR and DEI um, practitioner with 10 years of experience. She serves as a people and diversity leader with a primary focus on expanding inclusive practices and driving employee engagement. She is passionate about creating access to life-changing opportunities that aim to push the boundaries of excellence and innovation. Um, She's been a LinkedIn connection of mine for quite some time, so I'm very happy to finally have her on the podcast. So thank you, Christian, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Right. So what I always like to start with is just asking people if they can just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career journey and what led you into HR and then, of course, going into um, D&I. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the HR space now for about 10 years, uh, with the last five years being very dedicated to doing DE&I work. And my HR career started early during my undergraduate collegiate career serving in the Center for Career Development as an assistant career coordinator. Um, I had the opportunity to develop learning material for students to prepare for life after undergrad, if you will, and Mm -hmm. provided mock interviews, resume assistance, And while hosting one of the career fairs, I connected with one of the employers that was attending and came on board temporarily as an HR generalist and then converted full time to a recruiting role. So I did not plan to work in HR. My bachelor's is in finance, but the work came very easy and natural, uh, naturally to me. My family was always like, oh, hey, I need help looking for a job or a friend was like, hey, can you help me with my resume? So it's like second nature. Uh, my journey into the DEI space is really derived from a culmination of personal and professional experiences. There are so many different stories I could tell you, um, but the <laughs> biggest events really happened during my undergraduate collegiate career. And uh, during my, my first corporate experience, I worked again as a journalist and as a recruiter. And as a recruiter, you're the gatekeeper, you're the advocate. And I did more advocating and pushing other members of the HR team to act ethically. Um, to adhere to processes than I did actually influencing hiring managers to interview and select recommended candidates. And so, you know, I did, however, have a supervisor who truly had my best interest at heart. She just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, A Black woman, she was my first Black supervisor. And um, she really encouraged me to get certified in something around recruiting just to be a bit better. And so I signed up for the AIRS training program and they had a buy one, get one free. (laughs) certification on sale. So my second certification uh, of choice after the required professional certification training uh, was certified diversity recruiter. And I had no idea this training and certification would serve me so well. 
it was a push. Um, and so it, it was a push professionally to push um, just to read more books about diversity recruiting, um, to read more uh, about the employee life cycle and further understand yeah. DEI to the point of earning a certification around diversity um, through the Institute for Diversity Certification. And then I made the transition from being totally focused on TA to the entire employee life cycle. So all the areas of HR. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. It's interesting that you said that you had to do more advocating as a recruiter and making sure that the HR people themselves was following the proper guidelines and procedures than you were working with the hiring managers. I think that's very telling. It Mm kind of goes through this common theme that, that I've noticed when it comes to HR, when it comes to like being diverse and equitable and fair and that, that is very lacking (laughs) in certain companies that have HR and um, diversity and inclusion. So I guess my question is for those who are not familiar, what's the difference between a a regular recruiter, if you will, and one that's focused on DNI? Oh my goodness. I was, I kid you not, I was just talking to my partner about this earlier and I was telling her, I was like, you know, I've asked somebody this before in an interview and they couldn't give me an answer. And just to be very truthful, there is no difference between a recruiter and diversity recruiter. Uh, I actually even tried to Google it at one point and nothing came up besides diversity recruiting around unbiased practices. And essentially, um, whatever a quote unquote diversity recruiter should be doing, going after talent that's you know not white as well, should also be happening across all of the recruiting yeah. team. There has to be accountability. So um, there is no difference in recruiting versus diversity recruiting. Um, diversity recruiting essentially is just recruiting done the right way. Yeah, I always wonder what that was because there are some people who have that job title, a diversity recruiter, and I always felt like all recruiters should recruit under a DNI lens. Why it's like, so does that mean the other recruiters don't? Like, what does that title really mean? Um, I do agree that a lot of recruiters, one of the issues with recruiters is that there aren't really any official certifications or trainings. I mean, you can be certified, but there's a lot of recruiters, as you know, who have no certifications, they have no training, they have no HR background, no HR knowledge, and they certainly don't have DNI training. And it shows. And no, yeah, it shows in terms of how they recruit people, the complaints I hear about on LinkedIn, just all the horror stories when it comes to recruiters. So it can be (laughs) very problematic. Mm -hmm. So with your work in um, DNI, what made you more interested kind of shifting away from HR and kind of going into the DNI space? Was it your experiences that you were dealing with in HR or was there something else that was pulling you into that direction? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, So essentially I had never, um, outside of getting that first certification in diversity recruiting, I hadn't really given it too much thought, um, again, because the diversity recruiting piece was just recruiting done the right way. I think what really gave me the push to take a, a different turn from just focusing on TA to thinking about the holistic view of HR as a function and then DE&I as something to specify in um, was just the experiences, like you said, the experiences and seeing things being done wrong, um, looking at the loopholes, looking at the different biases, the favoritism behind the system and oh, yeah. people um, you know, overlooking certain things or skipping certain steps in a process. Um, and essentially, you know, TA gets and TA gets a lot of uh, a lot of pressure 
about being the biggest driver for for DEI and love TA to death, um, TA at the core. And that's not the case, right? So they do play a very important role in that, but it's also, you know, what happens when TA gets people in the door, yeah. right? Are we, are we keeping them? Are we creating an environment that is equitable? Do they have access to certain resources and programs? Or is it just a certain group of folks uh, who are allowed to access certain things? How are we looking at performance reviews? So I'm thinking about oh. just the entire experience because I don't know about you, Jessica, but when I was recruiting, it would be very upsetting to go out and find what I call a unicorn candidate, get them in the door. And then six months later, they leave. And somehow yeah. them leaving before a year is up would be tied into my metrics. Oh, yes. When oh, yes. In, in fact, that has nothing to do with my metrics after they started and got onto their leadership mm-hmm. team. Right. And then outside of that, no one is tracking why that person actually left so that we can actually pinpoint and figure out what the problem is to create accountability. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because that, so there was several gems that you just dropped, but let me start with the most recent and work it backwards. So once a recruiter, like people have to understand, once a recruiter hires someone, and by the way, the, the hiring decision is not the recruiter's decision. We, we present candidates to the hiring manager and they're the ones who make the decision to hire. We can advocate, we can suggest, we can we can have conversations, but at the end, the decision is the hiring manager. It has to be the hiring manager. They have to own that. You don't want to own that as the recruiter. And so once a person is hired, it's, it's no longer our responsibility. We, we, we did our part. And so when there's turnover, and I've been there, Kristen, like I know what you're talking about in terms of those metrics. I had a manager who pulled me into a meeting and she gave me a list of people who had turned over at this manufacturing company who had turned over within the first four months of being hired. And she was like, all these people you hired, they quit within the last four months. And I'm saying, well, that's not my fault. You know, once once they've been onboarded, it's the hiring managers, the team. Why are they leaving? Did you ask them why they're leaving? Are you capturing that information? And they were like, no, we're not capturing the information. I'm, so, I'm like, well, what do you expect me to do? And when we finally started capturing that information, we realized that there was a lot of things going on in the manufacturing floor that we weren't even aware of that was causing people to churn. And so that's why data and metrics are important because it helps tell the story if you're capturing the right thing. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, and I know you can always go into um, more details, is that a lot of companies use diversity as a, met- as a numbers game, where it's kind of like, okay, how many people can we get in the door? but then they forget about equity and inclusion. So in your opinion, why is the, the D is important, but why is the E and the I even more important? Oh my gosh. Okay. So the, the D component of that, the diversity is just who's at the table, right? Who's right. actually present is the demographics. And I think that kind of can be an indicator of where certain inequities may lie, right? If you think about different levels in the organization, which is great get to know the data as long as it's not being manipulated until it's the story that you want. But the equity piece is super important because it determines how healthy is the organization and how healthy is someone's experience as they travel through each component of the employee life cycle. Um, It determines who is, you know, next up for that promotion or how does, you know, how are the performance reviews actually structured? Are they objective or are they very opinion, opinion based? Are they very subjective? Um, Who has, again, who has access to the 
those development programs. And you know, I won't name the, the exact company, but I worked at a company before, a pretty large company. And you know, if you were not a director and above, you could not really get access to any kind of uh, mentoring programs, development programs, company sponsor programs. And it's like, well, you're missing out on the folks who are senior managers and above, in which by the data um, for this group, that was most of the people of color. Um, which is a, l- a large portion of where the Black employees fell into as well. They were senior managers and below. So then how do you change that if you're not actually developing those people uh, and who are supposed to be the next folks in your pipeline, right? right. A part of that plan. So just uh, so many things, but the equity piece creates the processes. It creates who gets access. It makes sure that, makes sure that we're not um, discriminating against people that we don't have bias built into the systems, that we have a chance to remove those barriers. The inclusion piece really helps to influence, you know, who's going to stay, right? And how, and again, how healthy is the experience that people feel um, while they're at work? No, you don't have to come to work and be buddy-buddy with everybody, um, but, you know, you do spend most of your time at work throughout the day, throughout the week. And so it needs to be a fairly pleasant place. You need to be able to show up and people not reach for your hair or, you know, people ask what's going on in the background or, you know, oh, do you live in an apartment? You know, just kind of thinking about the virtual space now at this point. And so make sure that people feel like they have a place to go to where there's some type of camaraderie or some type of community built into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of companies forget that. It's like you bring in the people and I've worked at companies where they tried, they was really big on diversity and, you know, we recruiting from schools and trying to get people and women of color, whatever it was, but then people, you know, like nobody was lasting longer than a year. So people was like coming in and churning out and, and I was at this company. And so I was like, well, there's no opportunities to move up. Um, you you have slashed so much funding for people to go back to school, for people to get certifications or whatever it is. And then on top of that, people don't feel welcome. People don't feel like they belong. They And, you know, when you talk about the performance reviews, we talked about that in previous episodes where a lot of those performance reviews can be very biased or they're more reactionary as opposed to proactive. So, it's just a lot of issues that companies are not taking into account where they just seem to be a little bit more focused on surface level diversity and not really building systems that are sustainable and systemic that can really bring about change. Mm-hmm. So um, in your experience, if you, if you even have an example, um, in what ways do you think HR plays a role in kind of perpetuating a lot of those issues? You know, you HR is kind of the heart and of most companies or mostly all companies. And I have my opinions about HR, but in your opinion, how do you feel HR either helps or hinders the diversity when it comes to companies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'll try to break this down into two parts because it's uh, a lot to work through. So I think there are a lot of obstacles that are still existing within processes and within workplace systems and cultures because they haven't been innovated, which I think is initially why the DEI function is now emerging is to innovate the the HR function itself. Um, I think some of the biggest obstacles that you can, you know, think about just from that you face in the workplace are around the employee referral program. Um, And uh, I'll go deeper into that one in just a few seconds, but the employee referral program, um, having inconsistent hiring processes, um, inconsistent and inappropriate interviewing techniques and questions. Uh, Also, you know, sourcing not expanding where you find talent at, being intentional 
and um, poor recruitment marketing and branding, right? How are you actually getting the word out about your company and uh, job descriptions not being updated, um, manipulation of data to tell the story that you wanted to tell, all right? And then um, limited partnerships and programs and essentially not enough people who are inclusive and ethical and decision-making roles. That's from a TA perspective, I'll say, because you've heard me reference before that TA is like the frontline gatekeeper of an organization. They play a very critical role in determining who gets access to opportunities and considers who's considered by hiring leaders. They don't make the hiring decision, um, but they do have a good hand in being able to influence. I think from an HR perspective, and I'll loop in all other categories of HR into that bucket, like um, benefits, comp, performance, L&D, is that you know, some things that we haven't looked into that kind of perpetuate that narrative is uh, pay equity assessments with adjustments, right? Not oh, yeah. happening frequently enough. And again, L&D only providing certain, um, certain members with interest into different um, development programs. Mm-hmm. Again, not, pro- not having processes in place to escalate and support employee relation complaints or exit interviews, we're not actually even capturing the data, right? And even kind of using PIPs as a threatening piece versus trying to truly develop somebody, mm-hmm. right? And then having the leader also be accountable in the PIP, that piece is always missing for some reason. Oh, and I can't yes. figure it out. I did my series on PIPs and we, <laughs> we talked about that. Yeah, oh God, PIPs, PIPs, PIPs. I, me personally, I'm not a fan of PIPs. I don't like PIPs. Um, I feel like there's a better way to address it. But like you said, I, I've had PIPs used as a threat against me. And I know a lot of people where that has been the reality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll say that the PIPs not being used properly. And then um, even just the, the performance teams in general, right, they have yet to transition the performance evaluation um, process from being objective versus subjectives. And also a big piece that we don't talk about enough, Jessica, is roles that have promotions embedded into them or having a career ladder. Um, Those positions have not been decided prior to awarding someone a role, right? So what to post versus what not to post is a really big piece that um, perpetuates people being skipped over and certain uh, affinity biases leading to, you know, who is next in line for what role. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because there are some companies that have this ideal of it's your career only, which is true. But I think that's also kind of a way to wiggle out of actually having any legitimate career paths. So I remember I used to answer this question. It's like, okay, what opportunities are there for me to grow? So is this position a notch in the ladder for me or is this position capped? And I think that's a question that other everyone has to answer. There are some positions where there is just a stepping stone to kind of moving up and, you know, you need to be able to know kind of what that looks like. But then there's a lot of positions at organizations that are just capped. They're right there. And so there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to move to. And so people get into these roles and then eventually they leave because there's just nowhere to grow. Um, the salary that you mentioned before is, is a big deal. I mean, now there's a movement kind of happening nationwide where, you know, you put in the salary in the job description, recruiters can no longer ask you how much money you make. Um, they always tell people you should be able to answer that question up front. But that's been a huge issue where companies are just not paying equitably. They're, the wages are suppressed, especially if you are a woman or person of color. It's even worse. So I, I definitely agree with that and how TA can 
I feel like he is sort of at the mercy of the overall HR team in terms of a lot of the policies that they can and can't do. Um, so I thank you for sharing that. So my next question for you is in your opinion, how should HR and DNI work together in terms of addressing a lot of the issues that you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. And this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I'm going to say it anyways. Okay. And um, I think that HR and DEI are not really separate functions. They're separate for the time being, right? If you think about it. Mm-hmm. But I asked this question earlier: What happens when DEI fades in the next two to three decades? Right. Okay. Essentially, it should. It's probably going to be absorbed into HR. And so, you know, how do they work together? They are essentially the same function, except DNI practitioners in a different structure are telling or partnering with HR to innovate and to really advance and make sure that the workplace systems are truly equitable, that that systemic um, racism has been removed from it, um, that everyone has a fair opportunity, um, that the barriers have been just removed from each component of the employee life cycle. Um, and a big focus initially has been TA. And now we're seeing companies move towards the compensation piece and move towards the performance piece in L&D and now benefits. And so um, they definitely have to work together to, again, kind of go through and refine what workplace processes need to actually look like. And, you know, how do you navigate and what do you want, what do you want your structure to say as a, as a company? Um, for the time being, DEI should be holding HR accountable if the functions are separate. Um, I've seen organizations that have DEI baked into people operations or HR um, at this point. So that person is serving as a centralized business partner for all areas, which is a lot of work for one person essentially. Wow, that is very different from other folks that we've had, where there, myself included, believes that HR and DEI should remain separate. Um, and my reasoning for this, and maybe, you know, you may have a different opinion, is that, you know, HR, the, the focus of the HR is really to protect the company and whatever that may mean. So um, one of the things that people have, or like I get people asking me this question of, you know, I had an issue at work, I went to HR and they didn't help me. And I'm like, it's very important to understand what HR is and what HR isn't. You know, HR is not necessarily your advocate. They can be, but they're really looking at the situation holistically. They're looking at the situation within a certain lens, which is mostly new lens. They're also looking to protect the company. That could mean advocating for you. It could not mean that. It's whatever, you know, it's just kind of whatever comes out of that. But because HR kind of exists within the confines of certain rules and laws that they have to obey by, it's kind of hard. I've, I've seen it very difficult for DNI to kind of be under that. But I've seen really good relationships where DNI, they work side by side. You know, DNI holds HR accountable. Um, they're not reporting into HR, but they're also working with HR too. So I know you said that you feel like they really kind of need to exist. Help me. So what's the word? Kind of collectively or together? Yeah, at some point they'll at some point DNI will absorb absorb into HR because DNI is HR essentially again done the right way. Whereas I think some companies are in a transition period where they're having to decide what kind of company do they actually want to be. Right. And many of them are trying to move towards being a people first company, which when you hear that essentially you would think that they're going to then depend on their legal department uh, and maybe their in-house employment law counsel to kind of help navigate with the protection piece and really make HR more about the people that they serve 
within the organization. And I think, you know, that's the way it probably will work best at some point, um, because when you take care of your people, they'll do good work, right? They don't need micromanagers. They don't need um, lack of opportunity. If you take care of them, they will do good work. Are there companies now that you know of that have have had that approach and been successful with it? Yeah, I'll say um, one company that I've personally worked at before, um, they're now, they've merged with another organization. So they're not exactly who they are anymore, but it was Ultimate Software and they were an HR tech company um, in South Florida. And I'll say many, uh, for most HR tech companies, they usually try to have a people first approach. Um, There are some um, other organizations, I think, that also have that approach. Lattice is another company. Um, that is very people first, right? The, the, the point is to take care of their people and then the people will produce good products. Um, I think that changes depending on the size of the company yeah. uh, and the industry of the yeah. company as well. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of, there is one company in Seattle that I can name, um, Gravity Payments, which is like the CEO's name is Dan Price. He's pretty active on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And so he, and I've mentioned this before, like he's he's really big on pay transparency, allowing people to work from home, um, calling out corporate greed. I think everyone at his company, no one makes less than 70000 a year, no matter what they do. And um, just a lot of different things that they're doing. But I wonder, I mean, again, it's a smaller, it's more of a tech, techie company. Mm-hmm. Um, I've do believe that it depends on the company, but is it hard because companies, their focus is on profit. And so what you've seen for years is years is companies sacrificing employees in the name of profit. You know, if, you know, getting rid of people, doing what they have to do. Do you see DNI when DNI merges with HR, do you see that kind of mindset changing with companies moving from that money focus? Money's important, of course, moving from just focusing on making money or business to to taking a center, a human-centered approach? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that companies have not learned to do well, and honestly, I can't think of a company that has gotten it right at this point. Again, just from my perspective, I, I don't know any companies, but many times the measurement of performance and the correlation to DNI is not being properly captured or mm-hmm. being properly measured. So I know McKinsey, a company put out a couple of articles and workplace reports back in 2018, 2019, just around how um, an increase in diversity doesn't mean causation, but companies have been tracking to see exactly how, you know, is the company more profitable when you have diversity increased or um, when company engagement scores are at a certain level, how does the company perform? And so essentially that should be able to translate into dollars to say, hey, because my employee engagement scores are X, Y, and Z, the the employees feel taken care of, um, then here's what they're producing in profit as an outcome. Um, and so, but not many companies are telling their DEI story. They're doing what you said earlier. They're just looking at, oh, we got X, Y, and Z number yeah. of Black folks here. Yeah, numbers. Yeah, definitely numbers. I, I think that's really important because I, I haven't really seen a lot of data around DEI and how that is translating into how people feel about the company, kind of what. You know, the data I would like to see is how long are people staying at companies? How long are your Black, Latino, whatever? How long are they staying? Are they moving up? Are they advancing? Are they? What does the career development look like? Um, how do they feel about the company? Is you know what is the employee engagement scores? And then again, like you said, is that turning? How's that impacting profit? If if it's impacting profit at all? What I have noticed that is a lot of companies that talk a lot about DNI 
I talk to a lot of the same black people who work at these companies and these are big name companies. And so the stories are always different. So they're saying, well, you know, they posted a black square and the CEO weren't can take off and this, and but the company still internally sucks. You know, I'm still stuck. I'm still not able to move in. I'm unable to, you know, black people are getting hired and they're being hired. They're being, what is it called? Downgraded or oh, what's it called? Down salary. Um, and there's a few companies that I know that I, I won't say by name, but they do that. Um, so I, like you said, I would like to see more data around those things as opposed to just how many people we hired that have, <laughs> that look like me and you. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of what I would like to see. Um, so I think my next question is, is the BRGs. I call them BRGs. Some people call them ERGs. I kind of use them interchangeably. But how do you feel about the impact of ERGs at companies? Do you feel like it, having ERGs at companies matter? Is that really helping with addressing some of the issues that we talked about or no? Oh, my goodness. Is that loaded? Is that a loaded? That's, like that's, that's a loaded, loaded, that is that's a loaded, loaded question. That's what we answer. We answer loaded questions. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so I'll try to give you the most condensed, meaningful, and detailed <laughs> version of this as possible. Um, so a lot of ERGs are not performing to the ability that they could be performing. A couple of reasons behind that. One is that most people don't know what they're doing, right? You're just someone who raised your hand to volunteer for uh, an idea that sounded like fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second piece of it is that they're not being properly funded, right? And so you need you need money. Let's just put it yeah. up. You need money to make some stuff happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, the grassroots efforts will you know, run out at some point. Um, I think the third piece of that is that it's very, um, it's very single, single-minded, very uh, narrow focus around only helping the business. Yeah. And I think ERGs don't realize how much power they have in being able to influence company policy and being able to influence social justice within their organizations and in their local communities, um, but also pushing their organizations to donate to certain causes or to support certain, you know, political ideas or interests outside, because most people don't know this, but your companies donate with certain political interests in mind. Yeah. And so ERGs have a really uh, strong place in being able to do that, but also um, being able to develop systems and policies that advance their particular groups. Wow. Um, one of the, um, one of the ERG groups I was really involved in at a former company was for black employees. They had, I got to the company, they had all kinds of communities of interest and ERGs. And I'm like, wait, we don't have anything race related. Like, are we scared? Like what's going on? (laughs) And and so um, it just so happens another young lady, um, I was introduced to her and, you know, I was like, right, you're starting this group. Cool. Because if you weren't, I was going to, and we've been really good friends ever since, um, but we created the ERG and we structured it, us and about eight other folks, it to operate like a business. Mm-hmm. It operated like a business and it, it operated so well that we got to really influence, you know, what our company could say and somewhat could not say when it came to uh, the murders of George Floyd um, and back in the summer of 2020. And so, you know, determining who got what funds and and what policies got added. And um, so, so many things that the group could do. We created mentoring programs for people who were a part of our ERG group. We had well over, you know, eight to 1200 members 
in that ERG group. Um, we had people who were willing to become sponsors at that point, become mentors. And so that was just really important that we got to influence in that space. We got to do really fun stuff. We got to introduce people to um, outside investors. And we had some really cool ideas that helped to um, develop the people, develop Black people. Um, and it was really that nice just to have that focus. And it really paved the way for other racial groups. But long story short, um, the groups are definitely helpful. You can create partnerships that help influ influence processes and policies throughout the company. Um, that group also had a chance to create an engagement model with talent acquisition. Um, so as you can imagine, TA is a really big pillar under the DEI strategy. Yeah. And so they get to influence what does that look like when you're trying to hire for Black talent? Awesome. I appreciate that. Um, I agree with you. I will say that I, well, most of the companies that I've worked at, if they had a BRG, I've always tried to join at least the Black BRG. Um, it's, it's, and I've also found that sometimes the Black BRG is either one of the most, they're not the most organized, but they're kind of underfunded. Um, and so it took a lot to kind of get these ERGs kind of working together, making sure that the funding was there and making sure that we were making an impact so that we're just not planning like social events. Because I felt like before George Floyd, a lot of ERGs that I was a part of at companies were very surface level. It was just kind of mm -hmm. like, let's create a mural. Let's, you know, let's do something for Black History Month, but nothing very, you know, substantial. Yeah. And, and now... Um, with the ERG that I'm a part of now, we're really looking at creating career development opportunities, really bringing, giving people opportunities to do leadership. Because one of the things that a lot of black people talk to me about is how hard it is for them to move into leadership because you have to have leadership experience. Now, they of course will give that to a lot of white people who don't have it from what I've seen, but the ERGs are there to kind of offset that a little bit. They can be depending on how they're used. Um, but I, I think when the ERG is done right and when companies are funding them, they can be great. Um, I will say that I worked at a company um, where I was part of the ERG and then I had to leave. And then I had someone who worked for that ERG reach out and she said, you know, we've been following your content. We have we have issues here and we would love for you to host a workshop with our ERG. And I said, sure, I'll host a workshop. Then they were like, well, we don't want to do it on company time and we don't want to do it on company software. And I said, well, why? And they felt like that space was not a safe space. And so um, they felt like they needed to do it off hours. And I mean, I always tell people the ERG does still belong to the company. So if you feel like you're not comfortable sharing within that space, then there's, there's something wrong with that. So yeah, definitely with the ERGs. Uh, my question to you is, do you know of any companies right now where they're doing it right with their ERGs, where these ERGs are fully integrated into the business, they're well run, they're influencing the policies of companies, or, or, or is there still a lot of work to be done there? Yeah, uh, one company in particular I can name, um, it's UKG, I think it's Ultimate Kronos Group, and they have an ERG there, it's called BUILD. Uh, stands for Black Upcoming Individuals and Leadership and Development. Um, that uh, particular ERG is running like a business wow. um, where they're embedded into marketing, they're embedded into uh, customer and sales and talent acquisition and learning and development. So um, they are truly embedded throughout the organization. They operate 
uh, like a business and they've created some sustainable change. They're creating um, programs internally, those mentoring programs that give people the chance to build that leadership experience. Um, and, you know, they're even taking the, the tech space, right? So transforming the yeah. tech space to have more Black users and um, more Black builders in that space. Uh, and so then creating even competitions for people to compete and to hone their skills and to get other experts in to come and do workshop trainings over certain tech skills, wow. right? So really trying to transform what the workplace looks like from the inside out. That's awesome. Now, how would you, I guess one of my final questions is if you were talking to a leader and at a company that did not have an ERG, especially one that was race-based, how would you present that argument to them that they need to have those, that having an ERG is very important? Um, I know there's some people who don't, that I've talked to who don't understand why companies need to have an ERG or, you know, have more than one. How would you present that business case to leadership about why those why those things are important? Yeah, I think one of the biggest um, one of the best approaches to taking to building out that business case is to one gather up just the demographic information about the company, um, two look at the recent employee engagement data. Um, and then three, kind of build out and maybe get like a sample size and get some interest around who would actually be interested in joining a group like this. What's the purpose it could serve? Um, of, I'll say a, a piece that I see a lot of ERGs miss when they're trying to get started and get funded and even off the ground for approval, that they can't tie the actual ERG mission and objectives back to company objectives, right? right? So you have to show where the mutual benefit is in order to get people to buy into it. Um, and then also, of, of course, having someone who's already in leadership somewhat advocate um, to maybe even being a sponsor um, in that space. So I think those are the initial things that come to mind when trying to build out that business case, obviously going out to see who else has, you know, done it well, right? Having those conversations, all right, what did you all do and how is this helping your organization? So to get those success stories and being able to say, hey, here's how it's actually going to help the organization meet those goals that it has on the scorecard. And I think anything that gets people, you know, talking about goals and, and meeting that is, is pretty intriguing. Uh, another piece that probably is not a part of the business case that will get companies interested is that if they've had something to happen, right, oh, that has their organization's name in the media because companies yeah. are media sensitive. Um, and so some good old press is a good way yeah. to, to get things moving with this positive press or negative press. It will definitely uh, get people to be more open-minded to hearing what it is that you have to say. Okay. Awesome. And then my, my last question here is, as someone who's interviewing for a company, what are some of the red flags when it comes to DNI? If you're interviewing for a company and you're kind of looking kind of what that DNI experience looks like, what are some red flags that people should look out for? What would you be looking for um, before you go into a company when it comes to their DNI and how how they work that mission? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple of the things that I usually ask about when I'm considering an organization or things that I would just tell people in general is to ask them about where they are on their DNI journey. Um, and just to ask them to see what their response is, what things do they feel like are being done well, um, where do they feel like their biggest challenges are. Um, I do ask them about the, the racial and the gender demographic breakdown of the company if it's not already listed on the organization. Um, and then I ask them, um, you know, if I can speak with someone even outside of the typical interview panel, right? So let me talk to someone random in the organization to see their personal thoughts on it. 
um, and not the person that you think is going to give me the best response, find me a Black person to talk to. I've asked for a Black person before and declined the offer. Yeah. <laughs> so they told you the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. They told me the truth, and they usually do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of my red flags is that I I look at, I go on LinkedIn a lot, and if I see a company, especially a company that's headquartered in a very large, diverse city like Chicago, Atlanta, whatever, and if everyone is white, to me, that's an issue. <laughs> um, it shows that you are being, that, that feels intentional. Like, you, it's intentional. I do also like to reach out to Black employees. I perf- personally like to do it myself. I don't like, the, you don't have to recommend. I can go on LinkedIn and reach out and um, have those conversations off hours. And then really, usually, I usually get the real deal, depending on who I'm talking to. And I like to interview people who are not always in my department, too. So just kind of talking to people, whatever they're from, and listening to what they have to say. And then when it comes to DNI, like you, having ERGs, how how well are they run? There's some ER companies that have ERGs that have been dormant for years, and mm-hmm. there's nobody there. The email bounces back. Those things kind of give me pause because it, it shows that you are not as committed to the DNI work that needs to be done. And um, those at least those are my red flags when it comes to DNI work. I know sometimes you can answer recruiter that, and sometimes they don't know. They really don't know the answer mm-hmm. to that. <laughs> so I will always recommend answer the hiring manager or answer someone in HR because they'll have more of a better purview or someone who works specifically in DNI at the company because they can give you a better answer. Recruiters typically, unless they themselves are in an ERG or doing that work, they don't really know. Yeah, I think something else to even to do is ask your leader, are they involved in any ERGs or, you know, asking them, you know, what things have you done to make sure that you're performing ethically and inclusively as a leader? Because essentially that person is going to, you know, help to make or break your career, right? You can maneuver without them. But if you have a manager that's supportive of you, you want to know if that person, are they really inclusive? Um, are they ethical? What are their thoughts about DEI? What does it yep. mean to them? Do they think it's important? Um, and so I think those are also some really important pieces. Um, one thing I've done recently is I had a poll up on LinkedIn um, around DEI and which of those components was most important. Uh, and I asked that question to the hiring manager in the interview because I wanted to understand his perspective as a thought leader in that in that space. And so, you know, asking questions just around the things that are really important to you and being very candid about it. Um, the interview is the time, right? They're interviewing you, but you're also interviewing them. Yeah, that is a good, that's a good point. Definitely answer that question and really listen to what they're saying, but also listen to what they're not saying too. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, if they just seem kind of confused by the question or a little put off by the question, to me, that is a huge red flag. Because if they, if that's not even in, in their purview and their, you know, what they're trying to do, that that that's gonna really conflict. And I've had I have a lot of stories about working with managers who I just was not aligned with ideology and it just didn't like it didn't last long. It was not a good work experience. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time out and come and share. This has been a great conversation, really breaking yes. it down um, because a lot of people don't know much of anything about DNI. I think it's really important to just pull, tease that out of HR and really make sure people understand what it is, why it's important, and why companies really need to start investing um, in that and not just surface level. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, so where can people find you if they want to connect with you and work with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me on two places. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, the handle is linkedin.com slash IN slash Kristen L. Bell, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-L-B-E-L-L. Or you can check out my personal business page uh, for any kind of independent consulting needs at refineddirections.com. All right, perfect. Well, thank you, Christian, so much for being on and sharing your thoughts and your opinions on DNI and HR. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another great episode here at Blackness in the Workplace, the podcast. As always, you can find us at www.blacknessintheworkplace.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All of our social media links are linked on our website. And you can go ahead and connect with us and engage with the content. Until next time, thank you. Stay safe and stay woke.